Hello, everyone. You all know the drill. We have to wait for everyone to come into the room before we start properly. And uh, this is another uh, webinar where we've had very, very high registrations. We've got almost 400 people that have registered. So um, I'm not surprised because the topic is so important. Um, while we are waiting for everyone to come into the room, I'm just going to um, start by telling everyone that this is a Balfour Project webinar. We are now doing on average about two a month and on a whole range of topics. So hopefully we can attract as many different people with as many different interests into the issue of Israel-Palestine. As always, we uh, record the events and we put them on our website on the same day usually. Um, and then send another email out saying that the, the recording is available. So um, you have the opportunity to rewatch or to miss to watch any bits that you've missed, share it with anyone else you think might be interested in the topic. Um, we also, we put the webinars on YouTube. We also have started putting them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts, uh, because we understand that that is the way a lot of people consume their information these days. So do check out all of our past webinars and this one included within a few hours of it finishing on all of those platforms. And like I said, we'll send out a notification when that's up. Um, so this is Balfour Project webinar. As I said, the aims of the Balfour Project are very clear. Peace, justice, and equal rights in Israel and Palestine. The mission is acknowledging Britain's continued historic responsibilities to uphold equal rights for the Israeli and Palestinian people through popular education, such as this webinar, and advocacy, and to convince the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. Um, we have a few events coming up in the future. Uh, we've got a webinar booked as um, on the 4th of March, Monday the 4th of March, 3 p.m. UK time with Nadav Tamir, who's the executive director of J Street Israel. Uh, he's going to be talking about how to turn the tragedy into a strategic opportunity. He's going to be talking about the Jewish responses within Israel itself to what is going on. So that one is going to be absolutely fascinating. Please do uh, check it out. Like I said, if you can't make it at the actual time of the event, the recordings will go up that night. We also have a couple of um, non-Balfour Project events that we are giving a shout out to at the moment because we think they are very important and by some amazing organizations. We've got an event by the Friends of the Spafford Children's Center, which is a children's center in the old city of Jerusalem. Absolutely amazing, adorable organization. And they are doing a book presentation and supper on the 6th of March, Wednesday, Wednesday the 6th of March at 6 p.m. in Notting Hill. And the book that they're presenting is an amazing book that I actually have somewhere here, I should have prepared myself, but it is Roger Hardy, The Bride and Illustrated History of Palestine, 1850 to 1948. It's a beautiful book, and that will be an absolutely lovely event. There's gonna be recipes by Judy Kalla. Um, fantastic, fantastic event. So uh, you can find out about that event as well on our events page on our website in the future events section. We also have former Balfour Project webinar presenter, uh, Matthew Teller, who um, is the author of a book, an amazing book on Jerusalem, The Nine Quarters of Jerusalem. He is going to be doing a talk on behalf of the Guild of St. John of Jerusalem Eye Hospital, which is a group of eye hospitals, absolutely phenomenal, not only in Jerusalem, they also have a Gaza hospital. This is a fundraiser specifically for the Gaza hospital, which is um, not in operation at the moment, but housing a lot of refugees. Um, it, hadn't, it hasn't had a direct hit so far, touch wood, but it has been severely damaged. 
Um, but they will be fundraising for the works of that eye hospital. As soon as it is able to open, it will be inundated with work, no doubt. So uh, that is in London on Thursday, the 18th of April at 6.30 at the Brompton Oratory. So again, both of those events, as well as our own webinar and our upcoming events are on our website. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, right, so now we've got everyone kind of in the room already. So I can start with the introductions. Um, and then after the introductions, I will be showing a very, very short clip, a one minute long clip from Save the Children, and then our presenters will take over from there. So I am very pleased to say that we've got Claire Nicole, um, who is Save the Children's Regional Humanitarian Policy and Advocacy Lead uh, for the Middle East. She's joining us from Scotland, though, today. We love Scotland. Um, she's been working with the agency's team in the occupied Palestinian territory for many, many years and is the author of several reports on the treatment of Palestinian children in Israeli military detention. I will be posting links to all of the reports that we're mentioning throughout this webinar, the Save the Children reports and Jude Lanchin's report as well. Um, I'll be posting those in the chat box so you will all have access to it. I will also include links to them when we share the recordings. So you will have access to all of those if you haven't had a chance to look at it. Um, this work has been underpinned by her time spent with the former detainee, with former detainees and other children and young people in the OBT, including supporting supporting the Gaza Children's Council. We've also got Tariq Shruru here, who is the director and principal lawyer of the UK legal charity, the Amazing Lawyers of uh, for Palestinian Human Rights. Before becoming their first director, he worked as a solicitor specializing in asylum and human rights law and co-managed the public legal advice service of the UK humanitarian right, uh, human rights organization, Liberty. He holds an LLM in public international law from King's College London. And we have also just been joined by Jude Lanchin, who is a qualified solicitor and um, has worked many years in community-based work. She's an associate at Bindman's, and she has maintained a strong interest in the rights of the child in the OPT. She was a key part of a delegation of British jurists which visited Israel and Palestine in 2011 in a mission funded by the Foreign Office. The delegation was tasked with investigating the situation of Palestinian children in Israeli detention. They also produced a report, which I will also share in the chat box, and today, Jude will be discussing this report and developments since the report came out in 2011. Um, as per usual, uh, everyone who has joined us, if you have any questions, we will have time for Q&A at the end of all of the presentations. So do post any questions in the chat box and we will try to get through as many as we possibly can. Um, and as always, our speakers are speaking in their own right, on their own behalf and not on behalf of the Balfour Project. And um, I am now going to share my screen and play this uh, a Save the Children video, which is going to set the scene for our presentations.
Both. That's a very powerful intro to our webinar. I'm going to hand over to Claire and then Jude will take over and then Tarek will follow up and then we will have Q&A. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Diana. And hello, everyone. Um, I'd like to start by saying a huge thank you to the Balfour Project for hosting this briefing. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be on a panel with Jude and Tarek, whose work I admire so much. Um, but going into this, I can't help but be mindful of the fact that this is not the first time that the three of us have been on a panel together um, over the years, sharing an ever-growing pile of evidence um, and insights into this abusive detention system, outlining how it's not rooted in the principles of international law, as well as highlighting the clear mental and physical harm that children endure as a result of it. And yet, despite these calls, and not just from us, of course, but from the UN, INGOs, Palestinian and Israeli civil society alike, there is no evidence of improvements, no safeguards put in place, no attempt to introduce comprehensive fair trial rights. In fact, there's been a marked deterioration, especially since October 7th. So in this period, um, we know that at least 440 children in the West Bank have been detained. And also in Gaza now too, children are being arbitrarily detained. And what is extra concerning is that we don't have the full picture of how these children are doing, even where they are, or the numbers. What we do know is that these children are being denied food and healthcare. They are separated from their families, facing extreme ill treatment and abuse, including sexual violence. Simultaneously, access to these children by lawyers, their families, ICRC, human rights monitors have been completely cut off. So this has severed our collective ability to provide any sort of protective presence for these children, to advocate for their rights and to provide the support that these children so desperately need. So I have some time today to present some of our key findings from our previous research, which um, I think is going to be kindly shared in the chat box. Um, and this research looked at children's experience in detention, as well as the immediate and lasting impact of children um, on children's lives following release. But I'd like to stress at the outset that this is what childhood under occupation looks like. It's not just checkpoints, the wall or the devastating cyclical violence that tends to grab the headlines. It's children's constant and very legitimate fear that they will be taken from their beds at night or when they're sitting in the classroom. It's children languishing in prisons where I hope we can agree children just simply don't belong hungry, afraid, in pain, denied a lawyer, or even a phone call with their families. This is a child protection crisis and a very long-standing one at that. And every single child who comes into contact with it is at really high risk of abuse. And while all eyes are rightfully on the situation, on the tragedy unfolding in Gaza, we also cannot afford to look away from the children who are being locked up and at risk of abuse across the entire occupied Palestinian territory. The harm and abuse of these children must stop. So turning to our research, in 2023, so last year, we consulted 288 children who have been detained in the occupied West Bank. And last year was a significant year, as it marked 10 years on since the landmark UNICEF report that found that the ill treatment of children in the military detention system was widespread, systematic and institutionalised. So we consulted children who have been detained, their families, detention experts and lawyers to understand whether this was still the case 
and to again look at the consequences of children's lives following release. Findings painted an incredibly stark picture. And as Deanna mentioned, I've had the privilege to spend a lot of time over the years um, talking directly with children who have been detained. And every one of these findings completely reaffirms what I've heard time and time again from children. So just to pull out a few, during arrest, almost half of children suffered incredibly serious injuries. So this included gunshot wounds, broken bones, dislocated shoulders, bruising, and even suffocation for a few children. More than of children were arrested at night, mostly between the hours of midnight and dawn. All of the children that I personally spoke to really expressed how much this compounds the distress that they're feeling. Um, being detained in itself is an incredibly traumatic experience, but imagine on top of that being pulled from their beds, woken up by heavily armed soldiers, often in front of very scared younger siblings, not knowing where they're going um, or when they might return. In detention, the majority of children experience really appalling levels of physical and emotional abuse. And we're talking 86% of children being beaten, many with sticks and guns. They're being threatened with harm to themselves, to their family, threatened with sexual violence if they didn't confess to crimes. I remember one boy that I interviewed, his name is um, Omar. He was 14 and from Hebron. And he was shot while he was being detained in the leg. He told me about the severe, severe pain that he was feeling and the fact that he begged um, the guards for treatment. However, he was told that he would only be given uh, painkillers or medical attention if he confessed to the crime that he was charged with. He still maintains his innocence to this day, but he did confess because he said the pain was just overwhelming. This is not an uncommon story at all. I've heard it multiple times. Some children reported sexual violence and abuse too, and this includes things like being hit or touched on the genitals, as I said earlier, being threatened with extreme sexual violence. And 70% of children reported being stripped naked at some point in detention. More than half of children also experience solitary confinement. And the, the duration of this confinement really varies, but some children, it was as long as 48 days without any contact with anyone. Now, this is an incredibly difficult thing for even adults to go through, but for children especially, this has really irreparable harm, to be honest, on those children. Children were also denied adequate food or shelter. About 70% of them told us that they felt hungry all the time, and the same number said they didn't receive any health care at all. And if you think about some of the stats I've just mentioned in terms of the level of um, serious injuries that they endured. You can imagine how much these children desperately needed adequate medical care. And 60% of children that we spoke to were also denied any contact visits or a simple phone call with their family while detained. And then this, this stat may not always stand out as the most shocking finding. It's definitely not the one that is pulled out, but I'd like to emphasize that in my personal experience, this is something that children really often point to as one of the most distressing elements of their detention. They speak so often of just wanting to hear their mother's voice, to have a hug, to have any sort of contact with the outside world, to understand how their family are getting on. Being completely cut off from their support systems also has a really significant impact on their ability to reintegrate back into their lives and um, connect with their family and friends after release. And of course, families act as a really important advocate for their children and serve as another protective presence. 
One thing that came out really strongly, actually, in the last um, lot of research we did, as I mentioned, 2023, compared to earlier research, was that so many children highlighted how stressful and traumatic transfer was. So when we talk about transfer, we mean between interrogation centres, courts, detention centres, etc. They described being um, generally put on the floor of metal jeeps or in packed transfer buses with their hands and feet cuffed together. Some children said that they didn't have access to food, water or a toilet for 12 hours or more. Some even described being put in small cages. Um, and again, this is something I've heard time and time again. Children describe uh, viscerally the, the, the pain and discomfort from being crammed in cages for that length of time. Unsurprisingly, given all of this, there is an enormous toll on children's lives following release from mental to physical health to how they interact with their families and friends. The vast majority, three quarters of them, um, said that they suffered insomnia and nightmares, that they struggle to reintegrate back into their lives. Children often say that they feel like they can't step outside their house again because they're terrified of being either shot or detained again. Um, some of them say that they never want to leave their mother's side again, um, but conversely, others say they don't want to speak to anyone at all, including their families. Um, isolation was a really common um, feeling expressed by all of these children. Many children also drop out of school and um, have very curtailed dreams and aspirations as a result of this. They, they often feel like they've been made to feel worthless and have internalized hearing that kind of narrative during detention and really struggled to find their place in the world following detention. <clears throat> Since October 7th, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there has been a significant deterioration even further. So I'd like to be clear again that due to the access constraints imposed by Israel, there's really limited information out there um, on the well-being of children in detention or even their location and numbers in the case of children detained from Gaza. And this is in itself a huge concern. Um, and the little that we do know, to be honest, highlights even worse levels of deprivation, violence and mistreatment. So we spoke to partners as well as the Palestinian Commission for Detainees um, to get a bit more insight into what the status of children in detention is at the moment. Um, and they themselves have been working with children and adults who've recently been released from detention. And this is these are a few of the highlights that they um that they presented. So overcrowding has become an enormous issue and this is unsurprising given the massive increase in the number of people being detained. So previously there are around five detainees per room, it varies depending on the detention centre, but in some places this is more than double to 11 or 12 detainees per room. Across the board, um, all children and adults reported that the violence they endure has increased. So children are being exposed to even more extreme beatings. And there's a lot of physical evidence in this um, in terms of the children who have been released. Our partners reported a lot of bloodstained clothes, broken bones and other really severe cuts and injuries on the children coming out. The Commission for Detainees also reported that some child detainees were so badly beaten that their fellow detainees didn't even recognise them. The children also reported that they were not given adequate medical care um, or in many cases any care at all and that the clinics were simply not available to them. 
they're described being incredibly hungry. Uh, they had very few meals and really meager portions. So one child said that a meal for one has to be shared amongst five children now. There's other elements of um, just services being cut off um, or just quite uh, unsanitary conditions. Detainees are denied a shower often these days, having their belongings confiscated. There's also been lots of electricity cuts and this, especially for some younger children, is really compounding their distress. They describe just sitting in the dark, feeling afraid. They've also reported um, a real increase in dehumanizing treatment. So some children said that soldiers forced them to strip naked and imitate animals or face a beating if they refused. And yesterday, UN human rights experts also raised the alarm about human rights violations against Palestinian women and girls, um, including in detention. So they report the, sorry, the statement outlined that women and girls are being denied menstruation pads, food, medicine, they're being severely beaten. Um, on at least one occasion, Palestinian women detained in Gaza were allegedly kept in a cage in the rain and cold without food. And girls in detention have also been subjected to multiple forms of sexual assault, such as being stripped naked and searched by male Israeli army officers. At least two female Palestinian detainees were also reportedly raped. Again, this is in the statement from the UN human rights experts, while others reported that they were threatened with rape and other forms of sexual violence. They also noted that photos of female detainees in degrading circumstances were also reportedly taken by the Israeli army and then uploaded online. So I think I'm probably running out of time um, for that litany of incredibly grim insights into what girls, boys, men and women are facing. But just to conclude, it is so abundantly clear from this ever-growing body of evidence that Palestinian children in Israeli military custody face systemic child rights violations and the situation is deteriorating rather than improving. Furthermore, all of our research, every child I've ever spoken to, show that children who experience this system bear the mental and physical scars of this experience for years to come. Now, I know most of you, some of you may know that the legality of the occupation um, and by extension, the military detention system is currently being deliberated at the highest court of the world, um, the ICJ. And I would, of course, defer to colleagues on the panel to outline how the current system is or is not uh, rooted in international law or meets international juvenile justice standards. But from my perspective, from Save the Children's point of view, what I'd like to emphasise is that some things are beyond debate in any court. There can be no justification for subjecting children to violence, abuse, humiliation, stripping them, threatening them, depriving them of food, healthcare, denying them contact with their families or lawyers. As I've mentioned a few times, it's been my honour to meet so many inspiring young people who have been detained and when I ask what they want from the world, what's, what would they want the world to do now? They always have one answer without exception, that the system must end, that no other child should be subjected to the abuse that they themselves have experienced. And that's why we too are now calling for an immediate moratorium on Israeli military authorities arresting, detaining and prosecuting children. And I would finish by saying that the UK has a role to play here. It has a close relationship with the government of Israel. We are urging the UK government to use this relationship to put pressure on Israel to ensure that no more children are subjected to this abusive system. And this, as I hope I've managed to demonstrate, is more urgent 
than ever. I'd like to end with the words of Hisham, a boy we interviewed for our last report who was detained at the age of 14. So he told us, after interrogation, I came out a completely different person. I was tied to an iron chair with my hands behind my back. The beating seemed to just never stop and I was blindfolded. So I couldn't see the stick they were beating me with or when the next blow would come. I didn't even know night from day. I realized something after I was released from prison, before I was physically incarcerated, but when I left, I was still in prison. I'm still living under their military control, under occupation. It never ends. Just five days ago, I saw soldiers kill a friend. They shot him in the head. It feels like I am always in a prison that I will never experience true freedom. I will stop there and hand back to Deanna, but I will be around to answer any questions you have later on. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for that, Claire. Uh, some fascinating, depressing stats. Uh, we will come back to you for the Q&A. Um, we will now hand over to Jude Lanchin, who, as mentioned, was involved in the report in 2011. I will post links to the website with the report on it while she's speaking. You're on mute. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for inviting me here. I have to say that, uh, like Claire, it is, I don't feel very positive about us all being here again, particularly in the current circumstances. Thank you to Claire for that very helpful, useful summary of current to the extent that we can tell and most recent research that Save the Children have done. She's right when she says that this is in a long, long line of work that has been done around the situation of children and young people in the OPT and specifically those under military, the military court system. I was part of a delegation that now went some 12 and a half years ago in 2011, very high profile. It was headed by Baroness Patricia Scotland, who at the time or very recently before had been the shadow attorney general. And it had a number of very high profile lawyers involved in it and was funded, although we were independent, by the FCO. That report made a number of key recommendations. There, there are a number, um, and so I won't go through all of them now, but the real core ones related to arrest and interrogation, bail, plea bargaining, trial, sentencing, detention, and complaints and monitoring. And I suppose if you want to strip it all away, the absolute key recommendation that we were pushing for was the audiovisual recording of the interviews of these young people on the basis that the violence would have to stop or be reduced but also even as some of the Israelis we spoke to believed it would stop the apparent 
in their idea, in their terms, uh, allegations made against Israeli soldiers and other state officials that they were meeting out violence and threats. Of course, that recommendation was never implemented. There was one attempt by the Israelis <clears throat> who initially greeted this report relatively warmly, I, I put warmly in inverted commas, which was the issuing of summonses to the young people rather than affecting nighttime arrests. Obviously, we recommended that on the basis of the trauma, illegality, abuse of human rights and so on that accompanied all of the nighttime arrests. That was a short-lived exercise by the Israeli government, which didn't last very long and was abandoned. I now, I'm afraid, cannot specifically remember their wording, but I know that the claim was, was that it wasn't working as an effective system and the young people were not turning up to court, although I do believe that the figures actually proved otherwise. There's been no other substantial change since we launched the report in 2012. And worse than that, really, um, in terms of the delegation, clearly not worse in terms of the situation that's ongoing now, we made two to three attempts as delegates to return to review what had happened to write an update report and to try and push matters further. 2014 and in 2016, and on both occasions, the Israeli government pulled the delegation, pulled any meetings that we might have had with anybody who wasn't on the Palestinian side. We have continued not as a delegation as such, but myself individually, um, alongside Tariq at different times and with other people to keep this issue alive, continued to try and meet with the government, continued to have meetings where they have reassured us, and Tariq will remember many of these, that children are a priority in terms of their dealings with Israel, continued to talk about it, and continued to push for change everywhere in any way that we can. However, certainly with the uh, change of government uh, a good few years ago now, when Netanyahu and other extremely right-wing people came in to Israel, it has simply been impossible to get anything off the ground in terms of a delegation, even to be involved with any kind of meetings, even if we didn't go there with other government-based lawyers to discuss the situation. It's, it's all ground to a halt. Every time we've chased or spoken with anyone in government, they talk, as I'm sure Tariq will mention as well, about, quote, quiet dis diplomacy or quote, private engagement. Who knows what that really means? As far as I'm concerned, that means the British government putting 
the minimal amount of pressure on the Israeli government to do anything about anything. And I'm sure that I'm right. They may privately have their own views as to what the Israelis do with regard to children, but they certainly don't do anything, even in private, to really put any pressure on them for change. We know, we know all of this already, and we can obviously see that happening right in front of our eyes in terms of the British and American attitudes towards the war on Gaza. I wouldn't call it the war in Gaza because that suggests that there are two equal sides in this, quote, conflict, unquote. So I'm afraid I don't have anything positive to report in terms of the work that we did. And to the degree that I've been able to obtain any updated information about the situation of young people, children and young people since October the 7th, it is mirroring what Claire has already said. Increased violence by guards, dog attacks, denial of medical treatment, insufficient food, lack of visits and calls, abusive language, suspension of education, and military court watch also report that there's been a huge increase in the number of children who are now in administrative detention from around six, which there had been for some years, to 46 since October the 7th, which is an increase in 1,178%. Children or adults who are in administrative detention are held without any clear knowledge of the alleged offences, without access to lawyers and effectively in solitary confinement for extraordinarily long periods of time. And it's very difficult to track what happens to them, has always been, let alone now in the situation since October the 7th. We can only keep fighting and pushing forward in any way that we can. And when and if a political solution does eventually come, and who knows what shape or form that, was, that is going to take, then the treatment of children has to be centre and forward in that. It's very difficult to envisage the shape and form that anything is going to take, let alone what will happen to children, but we have to maintain them centre and foremost. And I would finally say that, as Claire has mentioned, it is impossible to understand and know exactly what's happened with the transfer of children from Gaza into detention in Israel and, in fact, what has been happening with the young people and children who've been part of the prisoner exchange. As no doubt a lot of you know, the Israelis threatened the Palestinian families in Gaza that if they were to celebrate or make any noise about the return of their children, then they could be fined or worse. So it's impossible to know how those children are release anyway 
back after periods in prison is going to be traumatic enough, as Claire has spoken about, but release back into Gaza is simply unimaginable. I'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much, Jude, for everything that you're doing. And that's echoed by a bunch of our audience today. Um, we are going to hand over to Tarek next, but just a reminder, we will be having a Q&A session at the end. So if you do have any questions, rather than raising your hand, um, please put any questions you have in the chat box and we'll get through as many as we can. We always have far more questions than we have time for, but I always try to cover all the themes that are raised. So, um, so please do type any questions in the chat box. I've also told the speakers not to worry about looking at the chat box while they're presenting, but I will be sharing it with them. So if you do have any comments for them, if we do have questions that we haven't managed to get through, it will be passed on to the speakers. So for now, over to you, Tarek. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, Claire. Thank you, Jude. Um, it's a pleasure to share <laughs> this webinar and um, with you. And um, at the same time, it's, as, as Claire and Jude have said, um, this fills, fills, fills us with, with despair that we are um, that we are having to address this issue, and there's still so much work to be done, as Jude has said and as Claire has said. So. I'm going to be I'm going to be quite brief. I'm going to focus on the moratorium recommendation that Claire mentioned at the end of her presentation because it's extremely important and for us, um, it's the way forward. It's the next step. Um, so, at its essence, um, the issue of children in military detention is a long-standing child protection crisis, and there is no end in sight. Um, when a child is being harmed anywhere, that harm must immediately come to an end. It's all our responsibility to ensure this. That's why calling for an immediate moratorium is the essential and bare minimum recommendation to make in this context. As Claire um, explained, as also as Judith has explained, um, the evidence is clear and overwhelming. Israeli authorities are unwilling to reform its military detention system so as to safeguard Palestinian children from harm. This unconscionable unwillingness has severe real-life repercussions for Palestinian children, again as Claire and Jude have, um, have so sadly outlined. So what are we going to do? What practical measure can we now um, call for to immediately end the harm? Um, for LPHR, and I think that was, well, absolutely for save the children too. The answer is, is straightforward. We can ask our government to call for an immediate moratorium on Israeli authorities arresting, detaining, and prosecuting Palestinian children until comprehensive reforms have been made to address alarming findings of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. For example, Israel should swiftly implement all 38 recommendations made by UNICEF in its landmark 2013 report and permit regular monitoring of its, of, its, of its implementation by appropriate independent experts. As Jude alluded to, um, the UK government's good faith, private engagement approach with the Israeli government has failed to protect Palestinian children from systematic and institutionalized harm. 
this is the reality that we are confronted with. Um, a step change in approach is essential. We must put the protection of children first. We must support the call for an immediate moratorium. I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, all of you. I'm going to ask people again to uh, pay special mind in the chat box to the report links that I've posted. I will be also adding them to the website where we will have all the recordings and everything, and they will also be included in the email that I will send out tonight um, with the recording and so forth. So you will have lots of opportunity to have a look at the different reports that have come out. And um, please pop any questions you have in the chat box. I can tell you we already have a whole bunch of them, but I'm going to try to get through as many as possible. So um, the first one came in over email by author Beverly Naidu. Um, she says, during the research for my novel, Children of the Stone City, I met a group of Palestinian teenagers who had all experienced detention in Israeli jails. Their haunted eyes were unforgettable. I experienced solitary confinement and detention without trial in apartheid South Africa when I was 21. By that age, I was old enough to understand the risks in my political activity. And later, I was fortunate to find a creative outlet for processing my anger at injustice through storytelling. What provision is there for Palestinian children younger than I was, who may also have experienced torture, so forth, to recover afterwards? I don't know who wants to take that. I, I can I can take that one. Um, and it's such a it's such an important point that is raised. Obviously, I highlighted the immense scale of trauma um, that these children endure and all the different ways that this manifests. And of course, the, these children need help. They they need psychosocial support, specialized mental health programs. They need help to reintegrate back into the school year education. I mean, I'm pleased to say there are incredible Palestinian organizations out there doing all of these things. I mean, to name a few, Adamir, uh, Defense for Children International Palestine, absolutely incredible organizations, uh, many of them partners with Save the Children too. Um, but these organizations are also under attack by Israeli authorities. They are generally prescribed as terrorist organizations. They see their funding cut um, and are facing real obstacles in being able to provide the support that children so desperately need. Um, so I think that's an, another area that is really important for everyone to know about is that, that those on the front line who are desperately trying to give these children the the future um, and recovery that they need are also being being stopped to a degree. And I'd also say that above all, we, we that we're treating the symptoms there and it's incredibly important. But what we're seeing now is generations upon generations of Palestinians going through this system. And there's enormous intergenerational trauma. In reality, the only way to, to stem the tide of this trauma is to bring an end to this system and stop this recurrent intergenerational trauma. Because there are there are services out there, there aren't enough, there needs to be more, but ultimately we need a moratorium on any child coming into contact with the system. Thank yeah, you so much for that. I, I, I agree with um, Claire. Um, we met some people from great organizations like YMCA and others who were working with 
with the young people that is it is literally a drop in the ocean um and just impossible to deal with um with the level that that exists now and of course we don't know also what is happening with kids now in the west bank and east jerusalem we there's some information a little bit of uh, as to what's happening with arrests in the west bank but it's impossible for, you know, some organizations are managing still to exist, but those that I know about who are doing work are really, it's around legal things such as Al-Hack, et cetera. Um, Claire would probably know more about, potentially about the organizations on the ground. And she said, it's just, they're under attack as well. So I'm afraid that I think at the moment, you know, we had all these plans after we'd done our um, delegation. What we wanted to do was send out a delegation of social workers, child psychologists, child psychiatrists as a follow up, because our delegation was made up of primarily family law um practitioners with some criminal law as well. And we really wanted to follow it through with the more um the sort of um, therapeutic side of things. And of course, you know, none of that's happened. Thanks for that. Um, we have a question from Sheila Begum. Thinking of terminology, when do we say detention or detainee or prisoner versus hostage? Maybe Tarek, put you on the spot. Thank you, Diana. Yeah, thank you for the question. You're um, welcome. Yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we refer to detainees and, and prisoners. So detainees, um, uh, pre-conviction and um, prisoners, um, post-conviction. Um, in relation to, host to yeah, it's, a, it's from a legal perspective, um, that, that that's just that's just that's just that's just the answer um, when it comes to detainees, prisoners, and when it comes to Palestinian children. I, I don't know if Jude has, has anything to add. Has anything to add to that? Uh, not really at this stage. And I suppose um, while I understand the political dimensions to all of it right now, um, I'm more interested, as I think all of us are, in what, what we can do in this disastrous situation on a practical level of any sort. I do I do understand why you've asked that question, and I think that's something for, um, you know, a later date. And depending partly on the advisory opinion of the ICJ, perhaps there will be some sort of change of terminology. But I don't hold my um, don't hold my breath on that either. Sorry to be so low beat, but it really is, you know, I'm looking at Tarek's face. You know, he and I have been have been working together on and off for so many years, and it is it is very difficult to to sort of be positive about anything in, in the current situation. So I hope we're not bringing everybody down. Um, but we need to we do need to look for some practical practical um, solutions is the wrong word, practical steps. Yeah. I think. Um, got a question from Lika Nahal. Are Israeli civilians aware of what uh, Claire mentioned? What's going on? 
Um, I mean, what I what I would say is that there is some truly incredible work also by Israeli organizations and civil society who are also um, really shining a light on this system and what children endure. Um, but there simply isn't enough political will, to be honest. Um, I don't, to be honest, know the exact breakdown of kind of where Israeli society is in general. Um, I do know that those organizations do a fair amount of outreach with people to raise the alarm. Um, but it, it just gets kind of stuck at the highest level, I, I would imagine. Um, and that is why we really need the international community, especially, especially Israel's allies, to pile on the pressure. Civil society NGOs cannot do this alone. We've been calling for this for years. Um, we need Israel's closest allies, such as the UK, to really um, act uh, collectively and decisively to bring this to an end now, because we're, we're at a limit of what we can do, hence why we keep appearing on these panels year after year. Well, uh, did anyone else want to add to that before I go to the next question? No? Okay. Um, well, that follows on from, a, a, there's a couple of questions asked in different ways by different attendees about what is being done to shed light on, for example, the stats that Claire has given um, and the reports that have been produced by Save the Children and different organizations. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, webinars like this are super important. We are very proud at the Balfour Project that ours are shared far and wide. Please share this one as far and wide as you possibly can. Um, but what other um, attempts have been made to bring this to international audiences or key influencers, et cetera, et cetera? So, I mean, work has been going on. I, th I think the problem is, is that we're discussing this in the current situation where everything feels completely impossible. But work has been going on on this for years. I mean, DCI International has been traveling here, there and everywhere across the world. Uh, military Court Watch with Gerard, you know, Tariq will know this, um, with Gerard and his partner Salwa, who works with women in Palestine, have been um, to the states on different delegations. They've they've been many different types of delegations, um, whether religious, educational, parliamentary, that have come to the OPT and met with all the different um, organisations, including DCI International. Um, Military Court Watch, et cetera, et cetera. And there has been, and then of course there was the, you know, there was our delegation and then report, and then a year later there was UNICEF, and then there have been lots of other uh, mini reports or delegations from many different countries. And then those people have gone back to their respective countries and governments and attempted to disseminate the information out through meetings, etc. At one point, and again, this was kind of stifled because we couldn't go back and report further. We had certainly discussed within the delegation how to go to Europe and to use the report. And at that stage, it was the UNICEF report as well to get European countries involved. Um, but we felt that we needed to go back to um, 
Israel and the OPT first initially to report again to show that nothing had changed rather than to have a report from 2011 and then perhaps two or three years later. Yes, there was the UNICEF report in the middle, but, you know, to, to then not have an update because that would inevitably be one of the questions from European uh, lawyers or parliamentarians. And we could never get back in to do that work other than to talk to Palestinian organizations. And of course, their evidence is absolutely crucial, but we also wanted to be able to show that we have tried to have a dialogue with um, some of the Israeli authorities as well, because you know everybody wants everything to be very balanced. And our delegation was very much about being balanced and objective and independent, etc. Um, so there have been efforts, believe me, but you know we've. But I agree with Claire. We we have got. It's got to be a governmental and higher level now because we we cannot go any further really than we've already been trying to go to for years. Well, I just want to say that you are getting loads of messages of support and admiration in the chat box, all three of you. I will, as I said, share the chat box with the speakers after the events. So if you have any comments for them, please do post it in them. Any, any you know, boost to their, their more support. Um, Tarek, did you want to come in? Yes, thank you so much, Deanna. Just like to follow up on what Jude was said right at the end. Um, we... In my, it's my belief that we really need a minister to to um, make this a priority. And um, my assessment, which I think fortunately everyone will share, is that we're not going to find one in this current government. So um, well, we can, we'll keep trying, of course. <laughs> um, but the, the record shows that that's not happening. It's not, it's, it's, it's not happening. And uh, But that's not to say that in the future um, that that can't change. And um, I would like to add, and Jude will be aware of this, that, um, that Keir Starmer um, was due to be on the follow-up delegation going out in 2016 um, to follow up on Jude's report. And if that, if that delegation, let's, let's do a hypothetical, that, that delegation was a week away from going and then it was stopped really at the last minute. That delegation was, was, did actually go out it, and it did assess that the situation remained the same and that there had been no implementation of the recommendations in, in Jude's report, the um, FCO funded report. And it came back with stronger recommendations, possibly in relation to a moratorium. Then that is something that, and Keir Starmer was involved with that, then that's something that we could have hold, held Keir Starmer to account <laughs> to if he, if he becomes prime minister. I say that because there's there's no harm in there's no harm in addressing that hypothetical with him or with ministers in potential a future Labour government. Um, um, you know, let's hold him. He's a he's a he's a leading human rights lawyer. This is a both a major human rights issue and a major child protection issue. Um, yeah. So I, I I remain as as Jude will know, Claire will know. Although I'm. Um, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. We have to stay strong with our will on this because children are being harmed. 
Um, so yeah, we'll, 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 we'll keep going. And um, I'm grateful for any, any supportive comments. So thank you <laughs> if you are sending them across. I love that, Terry. Pessimism of the, I love that. Pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the world. Well, it, it really does describe things. And actually, you are right. That is a really good point about Keir Starmer. And years ago, you know, I went to meetings where he, when he was a, um, a local MP in Camden, where, you know, where he was on panels with different Palestinian organizations talking about things. Look, we all know he's moved to the right, but it has to be it has to be used because he was coming and so was Dominic Grieve. That delegation, we had managed to, you know, bring in some new people because a lot of the older people who'd been on the first delegation couldn't make it. And we had Charlie Faulkner from the House of Lords because his wife, Marianne, Marianne had been on it. But Dominic Grieve and Keir Starmer were ready to come. So yes, Keir has uh, uh, got to be held to account. Bit of positivity, thanks, Tarek, thanks for, Tarek. For that comment, because that answered a whole bunch of questions about um, what the current government have been doing with this knowledge, because it's been presented to them by many different people in many different ways, I'm sure, and whether a Labour government would be any different. Uh, Claire, you've got your hand up. You're so polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to, to build on that. Tarek and then Jude's point too, and also bring in an element of hope, as I know this has been a less than upbeat tone at times for understandable reasons. But I'd also say that at this moment, I feel that there's a real opportunity too. We have seen an upswell of support around the world for the Palestinian cause to defend Palestinian rights. We also know that MPs pay attention when they hear directly from their voters. So we need them to hear that this is something that matters to people. The UK government is very, very aware of this issue, um, but clearly the approach of quiet diplomacy and um, occasional criticism is not enough. It's not changing the system. It's not protecting children. So we we need everyone to raise their voices. And I think this is a really good juncture to do so with eyes of the world on Palestine. And I think everyone on this call, sharing research, sharing children's voices, mobilizing people, sending those emails, it it will make a difference, I think, because this is the moment when, when there is genuine chance for change, I think. And one final point is that I think states, along with sort of saying this is what needs to happen, crucially must also match criticism with consequence for Israel should the system not end. So in short, I think there needs to be a bit of accountability. And I think that all members of the public, everyone on this call, can play a role in bringing that about. I, I so would much, Claire. agree, um, Claire, and I'm glad that, you know, you've injected along with Tarek that, that note of optimism, because sadly, until October the 7th, people didn't give a damn about Palestine. Let's just be real. And not only did they not, but actually, other than those of us who are interested and care about it, people didn't even remember that the Palestinians existed, quite honestly. Um, and despite the horrors of what has happened, 
this has brought everything absolutely to the forefront and to a juncture where people are are sitting up and listening. And I also think it's brilliant what the Balfour organization are doing because you know you do have quite a lot of clout with and with um vincent's name you know vincent i met in 2011 when he was um part of the consulate in israel um and welcomed our delegation and we spoke with him and it's brilliant that he's gone on to to set up and be involved with this organization but you know we we are around and there are new organizations around and um yeah i agree with claire now now is the time if there ever was a time it's now we have all here a lot of admiration for sir vincent Fien, who was the consul general in jerusalem in the year that um jude went over with the delegation and obviously very heavily involved in the balfour project trustee former chair amazing man um, I just wanted to read one of the comments because it sort of summarizes a lot of the comments that have been coming in. It's it's of a similar vein um, to all the presenters. This is from Bernadette Cong Congdon. It's a comment, not a question, so don't worry. Um, to all the presenters, I think that the work you're all doing um, is exposing you all to vicarious trauma. Your despair is understandable based on what you have seen and heard. Thank you sincerely for your work and thank you for the illuminating presentation. So that has been echoed by many comments in the chat box and myself included. Um, but Bernadette says, I will be using your statistics to peti petition my government representatives in Ireland, which I think is fantastic. Um, like I said, I'll be collating all of the recordings, audio, video, etc., all of the reports and everything in an email that will go out to the mailing list. So if you want to, you can forward to that to your MP or you can summarize it for your MP, but there's there will be all the information for anyone that you want to forward that to. So, um, but on that note, I'm going to, um, I've posted links to the different organizations and the different reports in the chat box as well, Save the Children and Lawyers for, for Palestinian Human Rights. I'm going to be posting in the chat box our donation links as well for the Balfour Project. We try to um, keep everything as free as possible, like these this webinar series and so forth. We rarely charge for our events. And when we do, we try to keep it as affordable as possible. So if you can spare any money, please do consider making a donation to us. And if you want to become a friend of the Balfour Project, that involves signing up for any uh, regular donation of any amount for monthly donations. And that entitles you to become one of our friends. <laughs> and um, that means that you get access to quarterly Friends of the Balfour Project meetings with key members of the Balfour Project. We cover different topics, what we're up to. We love getting feedback anyways from all of you about what our activities should be and involve and so forth. Um, it also means discounts um, on the paid events as well, and sometimes free events, as well as hard copies of our different reports that we produce after our conferences and so forth. So I'll pop those links when the presenters are answering the final questions. I'll pop those links in the chat box. So please do consider it. We really appreciate any support you can give us. But the uh, questions that I, I wanted, to, I'd like to try to end on a hopeful note. You know, we knew the topic of the subject. We knew it was going to be overall quite depressing, but I try to end on a hopeful note. And that is um, what, what can we do? As you were saying, Jude, what are the next steps? Um, what can our attendees um, actively do to help with this? 
I'll open that up to all of you. Uh, I can kick off. Um, for me, every, a lot of things in Israel, Palestine are, are very complex, of course, and people feel a certain nervousness about engaging. But I, I think for this one, it's one of the clearest asks and things that needs to happen that, that I've ever worked on as an advocate. And it's that this system must end. No child can come into contact with it because they will experience extreme harm. We know this. There's so much evidence um, that proves this. So just raising your voice. I mean, there's different routes into this. Of course, we've talked about writing to MPs, mobilizing people. There's so much amazing um, community-led action at the moment. This is all part and parcel of what's happening in Palestine. It is not a separate thing to Gaza. And I think using the information that is out there, and you know, a lot of them have been mentioned um, by Palestinian organizations, Israeli organizations, but also international organizations. Use that, speak up, um, and really make sure that you're amplifying that ask for an end to this system. And just to say that if we're ending on a note of hope too, um, the children that I've spoken to, although their lives have never been the same, they also have not lost hope. And that for me is something that keeps me going and means that despair doesn't take over because if they can still feel hope and feel like they can make a change and they're amazing young advocates in their own right, then I think we can all continue to. Thanks. That's I think, amazing. I, think that I, I, I'd echo what Fair says. Um, I'm not normally somebody who, because I'm an activist lawyer and an activist who would say the first thing that would spring to mind is write to your MP or speak to your MP. But I actually do think that um, one of the most productive things you can do around this issue is to gather everything together that, you know, Diana's putting out and all the different reports and almost sort of put it in a chronological order. So, you know, you've got ours in 2012, UNICEF after that. There will be some other smaller reports um, and delegations after that, and then all the way up to 2023. So it's about as current as it can be. And now we've got the current situation and go and speak to your MP. I think writing actually is a bit pointless because you'll get some acknowledgement letter that won't go anywhere and then you'll still have to go and see them. So I would go and see your MP. He or she is going to have Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank and the OPT in East Jerusalem right at the top of their minds because everybody does. And I think you could come at it from a slightly different approach and say, you know, I haven't come specifically to talk about Gaza. I've come to talk about children and young people because that's the tag, if you want to put it in that kind of way in inverted commas, that will get people. Most people do care about what happens to children and young people. And then you can talk to them about what historically has been going on and 
what you want to see done, which is the system stopped wholesale reform, that that has got to be part of whatever settlement comes next. So that's what I would say, actually, for the most immediate step, other than all the activism going on the streets, demos, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, go and talk to them. That's, um, Thank you. Judith, you took the, word, you took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say the same thing. But just the, the one thing to add to that is, um, and Claire, I'm going to promote your, your latest report, um, your really important report in justice. Show them the key recommendation in that report. It's an immediate moratorium. This is what stable children are saying. This is their assessment. So, you know, that's, that's the highest authority you can get. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. Um, you've had loads of words of support in the chat box. I will send it all to you. You would hope that children would be an uncontroversial issue to get to people um, about the wider context of Israel-Palestine. Um, surprisingly, it, it has turned out to be quite controversial, which is unusual. Um, but it is a, a very strong topic to go at your MP with. And we are going to, like I said, collate all, as much of the information as possible, send it an email with, um, so that you can pick and choose how much of it to send on to your MPs. Um, I'll highlight those recommendations from the most recent Save the Children report as well in the email and um, loads of words of support coming in. And people have found this presentation so interesting, so, so useful, insightful. So I want to thank the three of you on behalf of all of our attendees, but I also want to thank all of the attendees for making time to come along. Uh, do share this with anyone you think might be interested, um, anyone you think should watch it, regardless of whether they're interested or not. And I'm um, really grateful for you all joining us yet again. So thank you all, and we will see you hopefully all on the 4th of March for our next webinar. Have a lovely rest of the day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jude. Bye. Bye.